Hello and welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Jim Glassman, who has an extremely impressive resume. He's former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy under the George W. Bush administration, as well as former chairman of the U.S. Broadcasting Board of Governors Association. And you may have even caught him on CNN or PBS as the moderator of Capital Gang Sunday or uh, on Ideas in Action. And he's currently a board member of Make Every Vote Count. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Today, we're going to jump into an issue that may not be on many people's minds in the middle of a presidential election cycle, but certainly was in 2016 and likely will be again in 2020, and that is the Electoral College. Now, Jim, as someone who worked in the George W. Bush administration and George W. Bush famously won the 2000 presidential election uh, while losing the popular vote, Many people would assume that you are a staunch defender of the Electoral College. Is that the case? No, I'm not a staunch defender at all. I mean, I am certainly happy that President Bush won the 2000 election. Um, Unfortunately, this has become a partisan issue, partly because President Bush won in 2000 without getting the popular majority. Uh, And of course, President Trump did the same in 2016. So two of the last five elections have been won by someone who did not receive a majority of the popular vote. And I think that's bad for democracy. Um, Whatever uh, has been the the tradition and however uh, states have have interpreted uh, their constitutional responsibilities, the fact is most Americans believe that the person who gets the most popular vote is the person who ought to be president. And there's a certain amount of illegitimacy that uh, attaches to someone who doesn't get the popular vote. Uh, there are lots of other problems with the with uh, the current system for electing presidents. The main one I just want to touch on, and we'll certainly go into depth, is the fact that the current system means that, mo- that the candidates, the two candidates of the party's campaign really in only 10 to 12 states, and they really concentrate most of their efforts in just a half a dozen states. And that's just not good for democracy. We can't have a dozen states determining who the president of the United States is. So I am very much opposed to the current system, and I've worked hard to um, to change it, which is what most Americans want. Yeah, I think you've highlighted a couple of important issues right off the bat. You know, one is the obvious issue that the candidate who wins a popular vote doesn't necessarily win the presidency due to the Electoral College, but you've said it's become a partisan issue. Um, Do you think there's anything inherent in the Electoral College that makes it favor Republicans over Democrats as it did in 2000 or 2016? Or do you think that that was more happenstance and it can really favor any candidate at any time? Uh, I think the latter. Uh, Right now, we may be in a situation where uh, Republicans have a have an edge as far as possibly winning the uh, electoral vote and not the popular vote. But this shifts back and forth. It really just depends on what the critical states are. Um, you know, you can probably argue that uh, one of the things that the current system does is it gives more weight 
to smaller states or to to rural states. I'm not sure that that's really true, but I would absolutely take no solace if I were a Republican. I mean, I am a Republican. Um, I would take <laughs> absolutely no solace uh, as a Republican that the current system currently seems to favor Republicans. That is very, very short-sighted. I mean, that could change. It wasn't very many years ago that people talked about the blue wall. I mean, after all, the Democrats are in the the majority. It's been a pretty strong majority in many of the largest states, uh, the largest state, California and New York, in Illinois. And uh, Republicans really only dominate in one of the largest states, which is uh, which is Texas. And Florida is kind of a, a, a pretty much a toss up, although it's trended toward Republicans recently. So no, there's absolutely no solace in saying, oh, well, the current system favors Republicans. And I believe, you know, in the 2004 election, John Kerry was only about 120,000 votes in Ohio away from winning the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And you have to think that if that had happened in 2000 and 2004, Americans of all political persuasions would have been united in trying to fix the Electoral College. But the way it worked out perhaps makes it seem more partisan an issue than it actually is. Um, You're absolutely Uh, right. And I'm sorry I forgot about that because I I certainly use that argument with uh, Republicans in Connecticut when we were campaigning for uh, in the legislature to win uh, Connecticut's support for the compact that will lead eventually to electing uh, the president by popular vote. Actually, the statistic, I think, is is that if 60,000 votes had shifted in Ohio from Bush mm, right. to Kerry, then Kerry would have won the electoral vote and would have lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. So that's <laughs> absolutely true. This is, look, this is not a good system for electing presidents. And three quarters of Americans uh, agree that it's not a good system for electing presidents. And, you know, what we found in Connecticut was a majority of Republicans agree that it's not the right system to elect presidents. The way that presidents ought to be elected is the person who receives the most popular vote. That, that, that's the way we elect every other office in America. And we ought to elect the president the same way. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, most people maybe take for granted that the way they elect their mayors or members of Congress or governors or city council members is typically through the popular vote. And you generally don't hear people clamoring saying, well, this system's awful. We should elect people like we do the Electoral College. It's really this one office that's so prominent and relatively unique um, in the political landscape. Another problem that you touched on already was obviously kind of the artificially inflated influence of about a dozen states, or as most people call them, swing states. I'm interested in this from a civic engagement perspective. I saw a study that showed that uh, according to the U.S. Election Project, turnout is much higher than the national average in swing states and lower in safe states which raises the argument that the Electoral College actually deters civic engagement in parts of the country. Are there other reasons that you're uh, skeptical of the notion of swing states versus safe states and don't think it's good that we divide states along those lines? Yeah, well, let me, let me just go back to what you were saying. Um, 
There's there's no doubt. I mean, I hear all the time because I live in Washington, D.C. I used to live in Maryland. Those are two examples of states that uh, have reliably been Democratic states. And I know lots of my friends, both Democrats and Republicans, who say, yeah, it doesn't really make any difference whether I vote or not, because it's a foregone conclusion. In the District of Columbia, 85% of the vote goes to the Democrat almost always. So people think, well, why should I vote? Well, if you had a popular vote system, the 15% that went to Republicans would actually count. Uh, Now it doesn't really count. And the excess vote that goes to Democrats doesn't count either. So I think that's uh, a very important argument that people are discouraged. And and another important argument is, is, is simply that nobody campaigns in these states. So you don't have the, the kind of civic engagement you were talking about. My, my sister, um, who lives in Connecticut and is quite engaged, she's a Democrat, she ran for state legislature, asked uh, the party apparatus in her, um, in her county, in Litchfield County, if she could get a yard sign for Hillary Clinton. And they said, yeah, but you got to pay for it. I mean, and the reason was that Connecticut is a foregone conclusion. It's gone the last eight elections to a Democrat. So they're not going to waste money on a yard sign for Hillary Clinton. Doesn't make any difference. So that is not, that's not good. That's a, that's a kind of uh, cynical atmosphere that pervades much of our election system. Uh, just as another example, I was on the, uh, on a TV show. And, um, and, and the, uh, the host said to me, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. You should say, you should, uh, point that out because I've lived in many places and almost every place I've lived, my vote really hasn't counted very much. You know, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. DC, Maryland, uh, lots of other States that I've lived. And I said, well, you know, that's not unusual because in three quarters of the States, your vote doesn't count. There are only 12 states where your vote does yeah. count, where the vote is contested. So that's that's bad for democracy. You know, I'm a lifelong California resident. And so in the presidential election, I've always felt, you know, I voted, but I felt my vote's not going to make the difference. And I don't know who has it worse because Republicans in California, if you're voting in the presidential election, you know, you almost feel like, well, you know, your candidate's not going to win. So why bother showing up? Uh, my wife actually moved from Wisconsin to California. So she went from a place where her vote mattered a lot to a place where it matters a lot less. And yeah, it doesn't seem like just by choosing to live in one state or another, it should impact the value of your vote so much. Um, do you feel like the Electoral College in a way violates the principle of one person, one vote? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I think what you said about California is really important. I mean, people you know California is a state that went almost two to one for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And yet there were 4.5 million votes for Donald Trump, 4.5 million votes for Donald Trump. So that is that is that's a significant number of votes that in a popular vote if we determine the president by popular vote, would have a real impact on the uh, results of the election. But you might as well just throw them out. They don't really mean anything. And imagine if they did mean something, how many more Republicans would be voting in California? And I would also say how many more Democrats as well. 
So yes, uh, it does violate the principle of one person, one vote. And and it's something that we can fix. That's the main thing. It's something that Americans want and that can that can be fixed and is in the process right now of being fixed. Before we jump into the, the fixes, because there's a few different options since the Constitution gives states leeway in terms of how they choose their electors. Um, one other thing I want to mention along the swing states, safe states line that I thought was interesting was I found a study from a professor named Andrew Reeves who said that uh, competitive states, swing states, actually seem to receive more disaster declarations and mm-hmm. disaster aid than safe states do. And it's scary when you imagine that just by living in a certain state, you might get better treatment from the executive branch because that happens to be a politically divided state. It's not something most people would think of, but it's remarkable how these impacts can trickle down and really make a difference in people's lives just by dividing the country artificially. Um, Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, And it makes sense, right? I mean, you've already seen... um, I mean, first of all, uh, Donald Trump has already been campaigning and he's been campaigning mainly in these swing states already. I mean, he goes to these states. If there's a disaster in a swing state, that becomes more important, frankly, than a disaster in a non-swing state. Um, Many of these swing states are in the Midwest. Uh, The president has made a very important uh, effort to on the on the uh, trade front to help states in the Midwest. There are also many of them are our farm states. He's also been helping the farm states. So uh, and there is research on this, as you say, that these swing states get more attention, more federal money, and it makes sense. But it's wrong. You also mentioned earlier in the podcast about the level of attention that presidential candidates spend, how they spend their time in various states. What have you seen in terms of how presidential candidates are allocating their time and their resources in terms of which states they're visiting and which states they're ignoring? Well, there's interesting research on this, and I don't have it right at my fingertips, but as I recall, something like 98% of all presidential visit visits by the two presidential candidates occurred in just 12 states. Um, when I was up in uh, Connecticut campaigning for, uh, for the popular vote, um, I pointed out that in the last election, only $300 was spent by the, the two presidential candidates on the campaign. <laughs> Uh, and there was only one visit. There, w- there actually was one presidential visit, which is, which is somewhat surprising because in previous, uh, previous elections there have been zero. But there are many states, half the states, have zero presidential visits, so or presidential candidate visits. So that's that. As I say, I mean that that's that's not good for democracy. We need people to be engaged and engaged in the election, and uh, we're not getting that from the current system. The current system is 12 states elect the president. Um, and that, that's, it's, it's as though we're taking a sample of, uh, of voters in the United States and letting them decide who's going to be president. That's just uh, not a good system. Yeah. And I mean, it's based largely on how div- how politically divided your state itch is. 
which isn't anything that people have control over. Um, one of the arguments you mentioned earlier or touched on was this idea of the extent to which the Electoral College helps small states, because that's a common argument that people have made in response to some articles I've written or on social media. They'll say that the Electoral College really protects small states from the tyranny of the majority. And I've heard Democrats and Republicans in smaller states make this argument. Do you think that that argument has some merit or do you think it's overblown? I think it's vastly overblown. It has some merit in that under the Electoral College system, uh, the number of electors a state gets is two senators plus whatever number of representatives they have. So, you know, Montana has three electoral votes um, and it only has a population of, I don't know, well, certainly voters. It only has about 400,000 voters. So um, a state, so that's, you know, that's three electoral votes. And you take a state like, I don't know, uh, Iowa, which has six electoral votes, but it has um, about 1.5 million voters. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so that's a, th that ratio is not quite right. So there is an advantage. We, you know, we absolutely cannot deny that there's some small advantage to smaller states under the current system. But, but, very important. Don't forget, 12 states do the electing of the president. And not a single one of those 12 states is a small state, if you define a small state as a three electoral vote state. So the smallest states, not a single one of them. Uh, the only actual smallish state is New Hampshire among those 12. And New Hampshire has four electoral votes, but the other ones are not are, are, are not small. They're medium-sized. They are large in the case of Florida. So smaller, small states are not participating in the election of the president. Uh, so, you know, that's, that, that's kind of a myth. And um, if we look at how the president is actually elected. You're right. When you think of the swing states, you don't generally think of the smallest states in the country, you think of Florida or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. And it's not as if small states are uniformly tend to be one way or the other politically. I mean, you have states like Vermont and Rhode Island, you have states like Montana and Wyoming, and it's not as if small states are Republican or Democrat universally. Um, as a Republican, one argument that I'd be curious to get your opinion on is a lot of people will reach out to me online or say things like, well, if we had a popular vote instead of the Electoral College, New York and California would just decide the president every time. Is that something that that you're concerned about, that these urban centers will sort of dominate the popular vote if we switch to an election by popular vote for president? Well, I just, first of all, that's just not true. Um, you know, we have, certainly we have states that have, that are populous and we have states that are small and we have voters across the country. And every voter, when you have a popular vote, will have exactly the same impact, whether that voter lives in California or lives in Vermont. 
you know, one person, one vote. I think that's the way that Americans would like to see the system work. I mean, under the current system, you had, just looking at the figures, I mean, in California, there were 8 million, 9 million votes. Let's just say maybe there would be 10 million in a situation where you would have the uh, electoral, uh, sorry, where you have the popular vote to determine the president. And you probably have, you know, you would expect there would be an increase to maybe 140 million people voting, maybe, gosh, 150 million people voting. And that, and, you know, so that's like six or 7% in California. But again, that's not really the right way to look at it because what we're going to be doing is shifting from a state based system to a person based system. And I think that's what Americans want anyway. So, whether you live in California or Tennessee or Kentucky or Vermont, you as an individual voter will have exactly the same impact. And that's, that is the aim. That's the goal. I like that you explained it as shifting from a state-based system to a person-based system, because I think that's an interesting way to put it. Because as you touched on earlier, California has millions of Republicans. And while a lot of people may think of California or New York, for example, as just pure blue states, that's really not the case. And I think it's more reflective of, you know, a true electoral map would reflect that there are red pockets and red voters in both California and New York, just like there are blue voters in Texas. Um, so yeah, a people-based system seems to make more sense than a land-based or a state-based system. And as you said, it sort of would enfranchise millions of those millions of Republicans in California if suddenly their vote was more likely to tip the balance of a presidential election because they weren't confined within this state that usually goes Democrat. Right. Um, I also just, touched, David, oh, just one other, yeah, just one other point on that. You know, I think Americans identify themselves uh, mostly as Americans. But they also identify themselves as being part of different kinds of groups, you know, which is something that Tocqueville uh, figured out almost 200 years ago. And those groups are, they're religious. They may be racial or ethnic. Um, they, they may be people with, they may have similar interests. And these kinds of groupings cut across state lines. I mean, they have almost nothing to do with state lines. Whereas the way we elect presidents right now is very, very state-centric. So I, uh, I think it's just wrong to think of people as identifying only with their state and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, we, we, we in, um, I don't know, Kansas, we're not, you know, I think of myself as a Kansan. I want to make sure that Kansas's electoral votes get counted. No, I think they most of all think of themselves as Americans. Make sure that my American vote gets counted. Yeah, the electoral map itself, the way we do it, I know it's natural to want to divide things clearly by colors, but I, I think it's bothered me more in recent years because even if a Republican wins Kansas or a Democrat wins California, on the map to just show it as solid red for Kansas or solid blue for California, it's not really an accurate reflection of the vote that took place there. And I think already, you know, leading up to the 2020 election, the way people are talking about prospective Democratic candidates, 
you can see it's so colored by the electoral college. It's well, we need, you know, a Midwestern man and a woman of color, you know, and we're talking very superficially about how to appeal to certain states rather than who are the best people for the job sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. So Kansas is probably the, I don't know whether it's the most Republican state in the country, but it's certainly close to being that. But, you know, Kansas, which has six electoral votes, um, received, Donald Trump in Kansas received one-sixth the number of votes that he received in California. And yet, you know, Kansas is a red state. California is a, a blue state. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense as far as I'm concerned. So we need to fix that. So speaking of fixing it, what can we do? You already touched on, you mentioned a compact, and there are different ways of that states can potentially allocate their electors. A lot of people listening may you know, know that a constitutional amendment is a possible route, but almost certainly isn't the most likely path toward fixing the Electoral College. So what what can people do? What plans are already in action? What what do you think gives us the best chance of success for electing our president by a popular vote? Well, I think what a lot of people may not be aware of is that a dozen states have passed, their legislatures have passed uh, what you just referred to, this compact. And what the compact says is that our, our state's electors will be pledged to vote for whoever gets the most popular vote nationwide. But that won't occur until enough states pass the compact. And enough states means states with 270 electoral votes, which is the majority of the electoral votes. So it's already, with the addition of Connecticut earlier this year, it's, I think, 189, something like that. In other words, it's fewer than 100 more electoral votes are necessary. So uh, that is one route, and that may be uh, that may in in the end be the best route to get to a popular vote. And the reason that you don't need a constitutional amendment that you could do it through a compact or something like a compact is that the Constitution is very clear. What the Constitution says is not that we have to have a system like we have right now. It says that every state, every state legislature gets to choose how its electors will be allocated. And in the early years of the republic, that simply meant that the legislature itself made the choice. In many cases, there were, there were, there were no elections. And over time, that's changed. But states have, have changed their method of picking electors many times. I think Massachusetts has actually changed the method eight times. Right now, every state but two has the same method, which is whoever gets the most votes within the state um, gets gets uh, all. So winner-take-all system gets all of the electoral votes of that state. There's no necessity for that to be the system. And in two states, it's not. So in Maine and um, Nebraska, those two states allocate some of their votes, some of their electoral votes, to winners within um, congressional districts. And all we're saying here with a compact is we're going to change the system so that the votes of every state or every state that passes the compact will go to the person who gets the most popular vote. That is, 
So there's no necessity for a constitutional amendment. And as you know, it's, it's difficult to get a constitutional amendment. Now, this system, I don't want to get too, too complicated here, but um, there's, a, there's another idea, which is that we don't have to wait for all these states to pass the compact. If you had a few critical states that immediately uh, pledged their electors to the winner of the popular vote nationwide, that would change the game completely. So if Florida and Ohio and Colorado, let's say, all said, well, we're, we're, our, our electors are going to vote for whoever gets the most popular vote nationwide. Well, that would, that would force both of the candidates to campaign nationwide. And in effect, that would create a popular vote nationwide. And most likely other states would join them. So I don't want to get too complicated here, but I, I think the main message is it can be done without a constitutional amendment. And in fact, it is being done right now without a constitutional amendment. We're getting there. The compact, the full name, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, as you said, it already has 11 states and the District of Columbia on board. And it's more than halfway to the number of electoral votes necessary, but it hasn't been enacted yet because there's an agreement that the states um, have to reach that total before they actually enact the plan. But what you're saying is that if one or two swing states, for example, tried to enact that on their own or award their electors that way on their own, you think that could shift the landscape sufficiently that other states would follow? Absolutely. So that if, if let's say, 40 or 50 electoral votes suddenly came off the table under the current system and went over to the other system, that candidates would have to campaign for the popular vote. You, in other words, you can't win Florida under the, what I'm saying here is that you wouldn't be able to win Florida or Ohio without winning the popular vote. Well, that would mean you'd really pretty much have to win the popular vote nationwide in a close election. Uh, so that would change things immediately. And now it would not necessarily be easy because people in Florida or Ohio or, or other uh, contested states, they may like the current system. I mean, on the one hand, they may like it because uh, they're getting a lot of attention and they're determining who the president is. But on the other hand, people in those states are not that much different from people uh, around the country. They understand that the current system... Yeah, deprives people of what they really want, which is electing a president by popular vote. They really, they really, it, the current system really denies Americans the kind of democracy that I think we all in our guts believe we should have. And so I don't care whether you're from a, a purple state or, or not. Um, my guess is you're going to be in favor of this. I think it's important that you're not only you know, touching on what the majority of Americans want, but you, you've addressed this idea that a popular vote would somehow be un-American or contrary to what the founding fathers intended. Because I think a lot of people have this belief that the electoral college is the way it is because that's how it has to be. But in fact, as you've said, states have a lot of leeway in terms of how they can choose their electors. It wasn't always done this way. And even at the Constitutional Convention, 
uh, you know, many delegates originally disagreed about how a president should be selected. So it was a controversial issue back then. It's still a controversial issue now. Yeah, this is a very important point. I mean, there's a there's a there's this kind of feeling that we have the system we have now because of some sort of sacred connection to the Constitutional Convention. When in fact, as you say, at the Constitutional Convention, I think they went through they had something like thirty votes on how to determine the president. I mean, they they could not agree, and in the <laughs> end, so in the end, they kind of punted. They said, "Okay, every state." is going to make up their make up its mind on its own how to pick its electors that's how we're going to do it so i don't think there was anything anything particularly sacred about uh what we have now it is just basically what's evolved and i think as everyone who's listening to this podcast knows um the we have evolved as a country as far as who can even participate in elections. I mean, it used to be completely up to the states. And, of course, as a result, uh, um, African-Americans, black people, could not participate in elections. Women could not participate in elections, except in a few states until a constitutional amendment was passed. Um, there were there were many... Uh, Many facets of our election that we election that we should not be proud of, and that were indeed undemocratic. And I think this is kind of the last step to make American elections truly, uh, truly democratic. This was really created in a different era when so many things—not just the size of the country, but as you said, who could vote—was um, vastly different than it is today. It shouldn't be considered so controversial to think that we need to update our system of electing a president, you know, a couple hundred years after the original system was instituted. Um, but you you mentioned that the last state you were in, the state that passed the uh, national popular vote interstate compact most recently was Connecticut. What did you find were the arguments or the ideas that were able to unite Republicans and Democrats behind this common goal in Connecticut, in the legislature? I think there were two. Uh, one was simply the idea that Connecticut had been left out of elections and no one can campaign there. There was no advertising there. It was uh, essentially written off. It had voted eight times in a row for Democrats. So neither the Democratic nor the Republican candidate cared to contest it. It was it was a foregone conclusion. And the second was this democratic argument, the idea that we ought to be electing our president by popular vote. It is what people feel in their guts is the right thing. And the fact that two out of the last five elections, uh, we didn't elect the president that way. And there was a feeling, I think, in both the case of President Bush and it, certainly in his, his first uh his first term in office, and President Trump, that somehow they're not really quite legitimate. And whoever wins the presidency, I think all Americans believe that that person ought to be felt uh, to be legitimate and democratically elected. So I think those are the two main arguments. I want to just, if I if I may, I just want to add the the main kind of counter argument that I heard. Absolutely. 
and and the, so the main counter argument I heard is that America is a republic, not a democracy, not a direct democracy. People would say, and to my response to that is, you know, what is a republic? So a republic, I think, actually, there's, there's no good single definition, but generally, people believe there are two characteristics of a republic. One is that it is a representative democracy. So we elect people who then make the decisions legislatively or in the executive branch. And, uh, and second, that in a republic, there are certain rights that are upheld and guarded, um, even if the majority of people oppose them. So on the second one, I don't think there's that really is not relevant here. I think we all believe in that. It's an absolute the, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Um, but on the first, this is no change to elect the president by popular vote. The president is still a representative of the people. And I said to the state representatives who made this argument, I said, well, you are elected by the people. Um, in exactly the same way that we advocate that the president be elected by the people. I mean, are you are you a participant in, I don't know, direct democracy? Is there something wrong with that? I mean, direct <laughs> democracy actually in, you know, in New England and maybe other parts of the country uh, actually exists at the small town level where you vote on practically everything. I used to live in one of those small towns. But that's not what we're advocating here. We're simply advocating that we have a different method of electing our representatives. So I think that the, that the argument about republic versus democracy is ridiculous. Um, but I heard it, and I, I hope that I dispelled it. In the end, uh, in the Senate, which was divided 18 to 18, Republicans and Democrats, it was, there was uh, a, a tie in the Senate in Connecticut. Um, in the end, we won uh, 21 to 14. So. Uh, Republicans, several Republicans realize that this is not a partisan issue, which is, I think, where we started this conversation. This is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that is about what we want in a democracy and what the majority of Americans want. It's about ensuring that every voter has you know, an, e an equal opportunity to impact the election. I think the argument you use with regards to the elected officials in Connecticut, though, is brilliant because it really puts them in a difficult position of, well, if they're arguing against a popular vote, then they're essentially arguing against the way that they themselves were elected. It really puts the onus on them to do some intellectual gymnastics. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I think that's. I think. I think that's right. I think that's basically what happened. You know, not only the way that they're elected, but. Everybody from, you know, dog catcher on up. There's only one office in this country, unless you have vice president, that's elected through this method. And, uh, you know, it does, it's, it, it, it's not kind of something that's, that's sacred and uh, enshrined. In, it, it is not enshrined in the Constitution, okay? The only thing that's enshrined in the Constitution is that legislatures have the power to determine how their electors will be chosen. That's all. Uh, and so it's not, so we can change that.
And most people want to change it. Yeah. And as you said, because we're in a representative democracy, when legislators have the power, it really means that we, the people, have the power to change the way that we elect a president. And as you said, there's that National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Um, if you're interested in learning more about this, you can visit Make Every Vote Counts website. You can check out our website at citizenstakeaction.org. There are other resources at National Popular Vote. Um, Jim, any other suggestions for people who may be supportive of trying to fix the Electoral College and you know how they can get involved or make an impact? Well, I think you, I think you, you've, you've cited the most important ones. There will be other states in which this issue is going to be coming up in the legislature. We don't know exactly what they are now because of legislatures. I think all of them are in recess now, but we're, we're going to see where we're, they are going to start coming up. And that's a place where you could, you can really, um, you can really get active. Let me just add one other thing, you know, um, partly because of the results of the 2016 election and, Maybe, you know, as well as the 2000 election, there is a lot of interest in in this country in uh, in reforming democracy and making changes. And I think there's also just the feeling that, you know, we're just too much at each other's throats. We've become too partisan. Uh, Americans have become alienated from their own political system. It's, It's a bad situation. And there are a lot of really good reform ideas out there. Um, for example, reforming, make, making gerrymandering more more difficult, uh, maybe uh, reforming the campaign finance system. There, there are many things. Um, many of them, however, most of them, maybe all of them, are going to be very difficult to accomplish. And uh, I'm not I'm not disparaging them. You know, I think there are lots of good ideas out there. This is one that we can actually do, and it won't necessarily take very long. And I'm glad that you kind of end this on the note of, you know, Americans participating in this in this movement, and uh, and they can. And I would just urge them, as you say, to go to the website and uh, also just pay attention to what's happening in your own state. And you know, one of the things you can do is try to initiate a compact in your state if that's not being done right now. You're exactly right that. We're in a time where a lot of people are interested in political reform, but because we also seem to be, and maybe it's because of social media, you know, at each other's throats or divided along partisan lines more than ever, um, I think more now is the most important time to unite around these bipartisan issues where we can really make an impact and show that Americans from different states, from urban and rural, Republican and Democrat, can work together to initiate some of these important reforms that you mentioned. Um, So I think, as you said, pay attention, learn what's going on in your state and how you can get involved, uh, because this plan is not a pipe dream. It's more than halfway to success already, and we can get it to the finish line with a bit more of a push in the next legislative session. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you to our listeners once again. Um, And Jim, keep up the good work. It was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you, David. I appreciate it.